Hello, everyone, and welcome back to But Did They Do It podcast. I am your host, McKinley Daw, and I hope you are all having a great week, and I hope you enjoyed your long weekend if you had Monday off. I know I enjoyed it. It was nice to have a day off from school because I'm not going to have many days off for the rest of the semester. So I also wanted to tell you guys that I tried to update the podcast website last Wednesday, like I said I would because I update it every Wednesday after the episode comes out. And the website is just having a hard time trying to upload the photos that I would normally put on the Instagram. So I'm trying to get it figured out, um, just trying to see if it can fix it or if there's a different way I can get the pictures on there. But I thought I would give you guys a heads up as to why that's not updated if you are one of those people who looks at the website. Hopefully it'll be up soon, but I'll keep you guys updated on that. I also have an exciting announcement coming soon for... Uh, not uh, an, an, an aspect of the podcast, I guess. And I'm just trying to figure out the little details of it, get it finalized, um, and kind of when I want to announce that. But keep an eye out for that. I'll obviously announce it on the Instagram and I'll announce it on here as well. I don't think there's anything else I need to update you guys on. So let's hop into today's episode. Today we will be talking about a shooting in the Lafayette Grill in Patterson, New Jersey that killed three people and wounded one and the two men who were arrested and convicted for the shooting. This is the Lafayette Grill shooting case in the wrongful conviction of American middleweight boxer Reuben Hurricane Carter. In the early morning hours of June 17, 1966, bartender James Oliver began his closing duties at, for the night at the Lafayette Grill. As he began to close up the tavern for the night, only three patrons remained. Fred Noyakos, Hazel Tanis, and William Marins. At approximately 2.30 a.m., two men, who witnesses said were black, entered the grill. One carrying a 12-gauge shotgun and the other two a 32 caliber pistol. They opened fire on the innocent patrons and bartender that remained. Patricia Valentine, who lived in a second-floor apartment just above the tavern, testified that she heard the gunshots and jumped up to look out her window where she says she saw two black men jump into a white car with butterfly-shaped taillights and an out-of-state license plate. After she saw the car speed off, she ran down the stairs to the bar. She saw James Oliver and Fred Noikus dead on the floor and Hazel Tannis and William Marins wounded. Hazel would actually later die in the hospital four weeks later after the shooting. Patricia called the police immediately and described to them the two men she saw getting into the white car. They were well-dressed in dark clothing, and one of them was wearing a hat. Police arrived at the grill within minutes, while other officers were dispatched to search for this getaway car. Ten minutes after the shooting, Sergeant Captor with the Patterson Police Department stopped 29-year-old Reuben Hurricane Carter's white Dodge Polara. Though it was Reuben's car that was being pulled over, it was being driven by 19-year-old John Artis while Reuben was laying in the back seat. And John Royster, who was a regular at the local bars and known as a heavy drinker, was in the front passenger seat. After answering a few questions, the sergeant let the men go and they left. But once cops back at the scene interviewed Patricia Valentine about what she had seen and they got the description of the car that the two men jumped into, the cops realized, oh, this description of the butterfly-shaped taillights and the out-of-state license plate 
matches that of Ruben Carter's car, which they pulled over just half an hour earlier. Police tracked down and pulled over the car again half an hour later. At this point, John Royster had already been dropped off at his house, so it was just Ruben and John Artis in the car. Police searched the car after they pulled the two men over, and Ruben and John were searched as well, and there were no weapons found on the men or in the car at all. The car was then escorted back to the grill, where Patricia identified it as the getaway car she had seen. Ruben and John were then taken back to police headquarters to be interviewed. The two men waited around until at 4 a.m. police told Ruben and John that this recent search of the car turned up a 32 caliber cartridge and a 12-gauge shotgun shell in the trunk, which this is the second time they're searching this car. The second time. So how do you just, how do these, this cartridge and this shell just magically appear in the trunk of this car? It doesn't make sense. And another thing, this evidence that they found supposedly in the back of this trunk didn't get logged for five days. That's a long time. Like, police procedure is you get the evidence and then you log it immediately. You don't wait five days to just log this important stuff and evidence. Like, that's a big deal. And as it would turn out, this cartridge and shell didn't even match the ones found at the scene which is ridiculous. Why would this even be used against them? Which it does later. Because, obviously, even if those really, like, were found in the back of their car, which I don't believe that those were actually there prior to the second search, but they didn't even match the ones, like, the types that would be used for the guns that were used at the scene. So, I don't know. It seems really fishy to me. So, both men were questioned, and of course, they denied any involvement or knowledge of the shooting. John Artis would later say that police pressured him into implicating Ruben for promises that he would walk free if he did, and obviously, he didn't. The two men were even brought to William Marin's hospital room later that morning, and he did not identify either man as the shooter. And just so we remember, William Marin is the sole survivor of the shooting. Now, you may be asking yourself at this point, well, why would these two men just walk into a random bar and just start shooting? Like, what's the motive? And I've been thinking the exact same thing. Like, at the beginning of researching this case, I was like, well, what's, like, why? Why, do, why would these two men specifically just walk into this bar and start shooting? It doesn't make any sense. So detectives were also wondering the same thing. And they speculated that the shooting was a racially motivated retaliation for the shooting death of a black bar owner, Leroy Holloway, who was killed by a white man earlier that same night. So, now everything in this case is happening very, very quickly. All of the stuff that we're covering right now before this is happening just hours after the initial shooting. Both Reuben and John both submitted to a polygraph, which you guys know how I feel about that. It's, don't do it, just don't. But both of the polygraphs showed that they were being truthful, and the polygraphs did show that Reuben might have known who was involved, which, I mean, I guess you, I'm like, how do you really tell that? You don't know what someone knows. I guess you could ask them, do you know who did it? And you could see that they were lying if they said no. I, uh, I don't know. Like, polygraphs are just not, not helpful. 
So as far as other leads go, a man named Eddie Rawls, who was the stepson of Leroy Holloway, the man who was shot in the first bar shooting, got brought in for a polygraph as well that day. He and two of his friends had shown up at the police station after his stepfather's death earlier that night and demanded to know what the police were doing about it, which wasn't much at the time because it was just hours after this shooting. It is reported that Eddie threatened the police, saying that if they didn't handle it, he would. Despite these threats, he did have an alibi. He was bartending at the night spot that morning. The examiner's report stated that based on the test, he had either committed the shooting or had knowledge of who did. Which, how do you tell that? I mean, you can tell if they're lying or if they're being truthful. How do you tell exactly what they did? I just, I think that's a lot to assume from a polygraph. So, since the results of the polygraph were technically inconclusive, he was asked to take another polygraph but refused to. So, good for him, I guess. He was never arrested and refused to testify about the night of the shooting, and he told investigators that if they did call him to testify, he would just invoke his Fifth Right Amendment and wouldn't testify. Both Reuben and John were released on June 17th, that same day. Four months after the shooting, Reuben Carter and John Artis were arrested for the triple murder. So it took them four months to arrest them, and nothing has really changed. There was no physical evidence linking them to the crime. Uh, they were wearing light-colored clothing the night of the crime, which goes against exactly what Patricia Valentine said. But none of that clothing they were wearing, nor the car they were driving, showed any evidence of any blood, which... If you had shot a bunch of people, there would be blood. Survivor William Marins testified for the prosecution, and he didn't identify Reuben or John. He described the shooting as just happening so quickly that he couldn't remember any details, which is totally understandable. Reuben and John both testified on their own behalf, denying the accusations that they had been the shooters. Both of them testified to essentially the same story that they were at the night spot on the night of the shooting. Reuben testified that he had given two women a ride home, then returned to the night spot at 2.30 a.m., and the two women who he took home corroborated the story. Shortly after he arrived back at the bar, Reuben, John Artist, and John Royster quickly left again to go stop by Reuben's house to get more drinking money, which, when they were on the way there, that is when they were first stopped by police. John Royster also testified and corroborated this story as well. While Reuben and John put up several witnesses corroborating their alibi, it was hard to prove they were, well, they were still at the bar at the time of the shooting since they left so close to the time of the shooting, like at 2.30 a.m., and they're just cutting it really close. A man named Alfred Bello testified that he and his crime partner, Arthur Bradley, had been burglarizing a building that same night. Alfred said that he had been acting as a lookout while Arthur entered the building. While being this supposed lookout, Alfred went down the block to get some cigarettes, which pretty crappy lookout if you're leaving the building where your partner in crime is, like, burglarizing and to go get cigarettes, like, not being a very good lookout. Anyways, Alfred said that as he approached the grill, he saw two black men walking toward him, one with a shotgun and one with a pistol, and Alfred said he dodged into an alleyway to avoid them. He then 
entered the bar and saw the dead and injured victims and decided to just go get money out of the cash register so he could go call the police from a payphone, which sounds like a lot of BS to me. Like, you're not, like, your first instinct when you see dead and injured people is, oh my gosh, I need to help them and I need to call police. You don't run to the cash register, I need money to go to a payphone. Plus, Patricia called cops from the bar, so obviously there was a phone in there. Why wouldn't you just call them from that? And obviously he had a history of, like, burglarizing and theft and stuff like that, so he was stealing, essentially. He's stealing money while there a shooting had just happened and there's dead people, and he decides that it'd be a good idea to start burglarizing this tavern. It's ridiculous, and I don't believe that story for a minute, that he was grabbing money out of the cash register to call police from a payphone. I don't believe it. He also said that he saw a 1966 Dodge pass by with New York license plates. Alfred identified both Reuben and John as the men he saw, while Arthur only identified Reuben, which how is he identifying anyone? I guess he did come down the block after he heard the shots, but he didn't see anyone. These men are ridiculous. Despite all evidence presented, a jury found both Reuben Carter and John Artis guilty on May 26, 1967. Reuben was sentenced to 30 years to life in prison, and John Artis was sentenced to 15 years to life. The appeals process began immediately when they both appealed their convictions, but the conviction was affirmed by the New Jersey Supreme Court on June 15, 1969. While in prison, Ruman focused on appealing his conviction and actually spent a lot of his time reading law books. He was credited with helping to calm down rioting prisoners during an uprising in November 1971. He was generally overall the picture-perfect prisoner. He didn't cause any problems and he mostly stuck to himself and kind of just did his own thing. He even put aside time to start writing his autobiography called The Sixteenth Round, which would be published in 1974. He also accepted visits from his wife and daughter, but didn't take visits from anyone else. John Artis was also described as a model prisoner and even earned his college degree while in prison. So, they're obviously, they're both doing great in prison. I mean, prison isn't a great place, obviously, but they're not causing problems is mainly the big point. While in prison, Reuben became acquainted with Fred W. Hogan, who was a senior investigator for the New Jersey Office of the Public Defender's Monmouth County Bureau. He was convinced of Reuben's innocence and decided he would take a relook at the case. Fred Hogan met with Arthur Bradley in May of 1974, in which Arthur recanted his testimony in writing. Fred Hogan also met with Alfred Bellow in September 1974, and he recanted his testimony as well. Which... Although these men can't get their story straight. Anyways, so basically they're saying, no, we have no idea who those two men were. For all we know, they just could not be Reuben and John. It could have been anyone. So based on these newly found recantations and claims that the prosecution had suppressed promises of the plea deals and permitted Alfred and Arthur to falsely testify that they had not been offered such deals, Reuben and John filed motions for new trials. This motion was denied in December of 1974 because the judge believed the recantations were unbelievable and patently untrue. 
Okay, whatever. A group of celebrities began to support Rubin's cause, organizing major fundraising concerts. Bob Dylan released a song called Hurricane in 1975 in protest about the perceived injustice of Rubin's prosecution. In a show of support for Rubin, Bob Dylan, John Baez, Joni Mitchell, Allen Ginsberg, and Roberta Flack performed at the Clinton State Prison where Rubin was incarcerated. In January of 1976, Alfred Bella signed a new sworn statement recanting his recantation. Basically saying, he's like, I was offered bribes by that investigator and some reporters, which all of those people denied. Which, obviously this man's very untrustworthy. He can't, he's saying he saw what he saw, then he's saying he didn't see what he saw. And then he's like, just kidding, they bribed me and I did see what I saw. Make up your mind. For real. So, it's crazy. But... Arthur Bradley stood by his recantation. The New Jersey Supreme Court reversed the two men's conviction on March 17, 1976. It found reversible error with regard to other claims of evidence suppression of an earlier inconsistent taped interview with Alfred and of the prosecution's allowance of false trial testimony by Alfred and Arthur denying offers of favorable treatment by the prosecutor. So basically what that means so there's a taped interview with alfred and his story is just super inconsistent um and also alfred and arthur both testified that they weren't offered any bribes or plea deals or anything from the prosecution which they did and prosecutors didn't disclose that and basically knowingly let these two men lie on the stand and perjure themselves Anyways, after this ruling, boxer Muhammad Ali paid $35,000 in combined bail for Reuben and John, which that's super cool. At this new trial, Alfred was the only one to testify and Reuben didn't. I mean, at this new trial, Alfred was the only one to testify and identify Reuben and John as being at the scene. Arthur didn't testify. The prosecution introduced testimony from people who claimed they had been approached to provide false alibis on Rubin's behalf, which I couldn't find any more information on that, so it must be irrelevant. The defense focused on the efforts of police to frame the two men by presenting evidence to support the theory that the shell and cartridge found in the trunk of Rubin's car were planted by police, which I believed all along. But unfortunately, the men were convicted once again. Reuben was expecting the birth of his second child shortly after this second conviction, but he was not allowed to remain free for the birth. John Artis was released from prison on parole on December 22, 1981. The case was heard in front of a federal court judge for the first time in 1985. Judge H. Lee Sorokin of the U.S. District Court for the District of New Jersey granted a writ of habeas corpus and overturned the convictions on November 8, 1985. Judge Sorokin ruled that the prosecution's baseless racial revenge theory was unconstitutional and found that a recorded polygraph test that would have impeached Alfred's crucial te trial testimony had been withheld by the prosecution. Judge Sorokin stated that the convictions were based on, quote, an appeal to racism rather than reason, concealment rather than disclosure, post quote. Rubin was released from prison following this ruling, and the prosecution filed several unsuccessful motions to have him return to prison on the basis that he was 
violent and dangerous, which is absolutely not true. And we see that based on his behavior in prison. He's not violent or dangerous. In April 1986, police arrested John Artis on drug and handgun possession charges. He pled guilty to these charges and was sentenced to six years in prison. He was released from prison in 1988 and he moved to Virginia, committing to rebuilding his life. He soon found his calling as a youth counselor, a field of work he would continue in for many years. On January 11, 1988, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the 1985 District Court decision to overturn the convictions of Reuben and John. Judge Ralph V. Martin of Passaic County Superior Court then signed an order dismissing the murder charges against both men on February 26, 1988. After his release, Reuben moved to Canada, where he worked on behalf of the wrongfully convicted. In 2004, he founded Innocence International, a Canadian nonprofit organization that sought to free wrongfully imprisoned individuals. The Institute for Global Leadership at Tufts University later took over aspects of the organization's work. Throughout their years in prison and after their release, John and Reuben remained close friends. When Reuben was diagnosed with prostate cancer, John moved to Canada to care for him. John was by Reuben's side when he died in April 2014. John continued to share their story with a documentary film called My Name is John Artis, released in February 2020. John Artis died in 2021, and he was 75. And that is the Lafayette Grills shooting case and the wrongful convictions of Reuben Hurricane Carter and John Artis. Even though I didn't intentionally kind of include that it was just included anyways anyways I hope you guys enjoyed this episode it's definitely an interesting one it's interesting I guess Reuben Hurricane Carter isn't mostly known for his work as a boxer he's mostly known for this case but it is interesting to see how celebrities of sorts um like can be handled in the justice system but yeah, that case was pretty crazy. Um, just a lot of police misconduct in that, obviously, and a lot of suppression of evidence. All, all things we see a lot in these cases, unfortunately. But yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode, and I will be back next week with a brand new one. Have a good day, guys. I'll see you next week. Bye.